want to welcome you to our gathering today as we get settled in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is one of, is a letter in the New Testament following Colossians, and uh, because today we are going to start a series that we're going to be in uh, for the foreseeable future, at least until uh, through February of next year, entitled "The People in the Now Longing for the Future." Now, I will say, as I built this graphic, uh, I showed it to Macy, and she said, "It looks like barbecue." Uh, that is not barbecue. Uh, those are mountains, but if you see it as barbecue, that's okay because it goes along with the series, right? Like when you uh, make barbecue, you, uh, you live in the now, smelling it all, but you long for the future when you get to eat it, okay? But this is bigger than barbecue because it's about Jesus, okay? So don't, don't start thinking about LJ's and truth. You can go there afterwards. Let's talk about the one who is greater than barbecue, which is Jesus. So, um, as you turn there, or as you quit thinking about barbecue, I want to begin our time today by laying out, well, really what I want to do is I want to lay out some background on this book while also uh, just setting out some goals for our time in this series um, that again will take us through this letter, but also as soon as we finish First, Thess- first Thessalonians, if there's a first, there's got to be a second, uh, second uh, Thessalonians coming up beginning in the new year. So as we open this letter, 1 Thessalonians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul somewhere between AD 49 to 51. Most scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians was actually the first letter that Paul wrote to the churches that he wrote to. So this is kind of the first one. And really the story of how this letter came about is found, if you, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go to Acts chapter 17, you find the story uh, of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. So what Paul and Silas do uh, is as, uh, man, God continues to move and work, we see it begins uh, in Jerusalem, which is what Jesus said would happen. He says, you know, uh, you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So uh, at Pentecost, uh, man, uh, you know, many come to faith that day in Jerusalem. But as they're there, what happens? As the word is proclaimed, as people are saved, persecution begins to arise. Because guess what? Uh, it's, God uses that not as a way to punish his people, but as the manner by which he says, Hey, remember, I said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Don't get comfortable here. And he sends them out. God's people are dispersed. Uh, throughout the known world, particularly what we see is once Paul is converted, uh, probably some 15 years after his conversion, he uh, begins to go and establish and plant churches, right? And, and so Paul and Silas are, are on what is uh, likely Paul's second missionary journey. And they head to Thessalonica because th- this city was a strategic uh, city in the Roman Empire. It was actually named after, I believe, uh, the wife of one of Caesar's cousins. Uh, but Thessalonica was a strategic city uh, in that it, it was, one, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, it had a great harbor. Some said that, that while Rome was the capital, Macedonia was second in the running. Okay, And so, man, this was a, a very strategic place, not simply because of the culture and everything that was going on there, but... It was also strategic for Paul in terms of how he went about planting churches. Because you see, uh, in Thessalonica, they had a large enough percentage of a Jewish population that it, they actually had a Jewish synagogue. 
And so what happens is Paul and Silas enter in to Thessalonica and we see that for three weeks straight, he proclaims the gospel to those in the synagogue in kind of his typical manner. If you look at the book of Acts, that's what Paul would do. He would go into a city and he would say, hey, where's your synagogue? And then he would spend time there proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And what he would do is he would begin in week one is he would say, hey, uh, I'm going to point uh, these, these Jewish leaders, these Jewish people, anyone who's listening, I'm going to point them to the, the, the Old Testament. And in doing so, I'm going to show them that all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, there was this expectation that the Savior would come. And, and they knew that, right? But Paul begins to point to, over and over and over again throughout Scripture, that the Savior would come and suffer and die, but also rise again. And so he would do that in week one. And then in week two, Paul would meet again and he would say, okay, now that we have that, let me point to you to Jesus. And he would tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then week three, he would get them all back together and he would say, okay, one plus one equals Two, we're going to put this together and I'm going to re- he would reveal to them and proclaim to them, hey, the Old Testament that you know, those things that were spoken, this is who Jesus is. Guess what? He's the one that the Old Testament always talked about. He is the Savior King that has come. He is the Christ. What Paul would do there is he would point to the good news of redemption that the Savior has come and therefore they are to repent and believe. And so a result, if you look at Acts 17, is that a number of Jews, and actually a large number of Greeks, and I think that that's key for uh, really verse 9 and 10 today, we see something take place. They come to faith. But not only do they come to faith, a church is formed in the city. A church is established. But you see, again, as often happens through the book of Acts, it doesn't take long for the Jewish people to stir up trouble with not only the Christians, but also with Rome, right? So every time Paul, uh, usually we'd go plant a church or Christians would begin to establish themselves, man, they would stir up Rome by saying, hey, these Christians, guess what they're doing? They're saying there's one greater than Caesar. They're, they're talking about this guy, Jesus, and they're saying, hey, he is actually the true king. And what that would produce, if you know anything about Roman culture, or really any culture where there's a ruler who's reigning in authority, uh, ruthless authority, man, they want to snuff that stuff out, right? And so persecution would arise. Because you see, to pl- proclaim another king uh, ha- was to defy the authority and reign of Caesar. And so persecution comes uh, following everything that takes place at the beginning of Acts 17. And it gets so bad that it says next that the brothers or the church would actually say, Hey, Paul and Silas, we're glad that you've been here, but guess what? So Acts 1-8 can get fulfilled. Y'all need to continue to go. Go to the next place and continue to do what you're doing. And so we they do that, they leave, and then uh, after a bit of time we get... They get this letter. So a church is established and then a letter is written. So why the letter? Well, the letter to the church is written as an attempt for Paul to reconnect with this church following a report that he had received from Timothy about how the church was doing. And what he's heard is that the church in Thessalonica is flourishing despite continual but actually worsening persecution. 
And so Paul writes this letter out of concern for the church in the hopes that really he wants to do two things with this letter. First, he wants to encourage and celebrate their faithfulness to God and the proclamation of the gospel in the now. A people in the now. But also, he wants to challenge them to focus and continue on as they long for the return of Christ in the face of persecution. Really what we see in chapters 1 through 3 of this letter is this celebration of faithfulness. Paul is going to be very narrative in how he goes about this. And what he does in 1 through 3 is he's just continually saying, Hey, remember what Jesus has done. Hey, this is what we know you've been doing. Keep going, keep doing it. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he's going to exhort them. Hey, I know things are hard. I know things are hard, but keep going. Because you're a people that, that, that remember that, that you're longing for what's to come. And so we see why the letter, which brings us to our next kind of introductory question. Like, why this series for Center Church in this moment? Well, I think that as God's people, we need to sit in this letter for a few reasons. First, this is a letter to the church that is meant to encourage and inform us about what it means to be the church. And by church, I don't mean, again, I don't mean this building. We're only in here one day a week. Some of you got here at 7 o'clock, some of you 8, some of you 9, some of you 10, 20. Uh, it's okay. Like, but we're only in here one day a week, right? So that's not what Paul's arguing and talking about here. No, actually he's saying, hey, no, the people of God. This is what it means to be God's people. Today, in the now, in this moment in history, We are a people who are called out of something, death, and into something. We are called into new life that actually lives in the face of whatever comes our way. Secondly, as God's people, we have, we have to come to understand that we are, again, I've, I've already expressed that the people that live in the now, and yet in the midst of it, we are all in moments, and at time, probably daily, are longing for the future. Anyone feel that daily? Like you're just going on through about life, like everything, and you're just like, oh man, Jesus, I wish you would just come back, right? Like, you know, and that's not one of the, like, that's not like, you know, um, where we're just seeking anything other than like, man, it it actually, it would be, it's going to be better when you do. So like Maranatha, like Jesus return, make all things new. That's what I mean by future. No more sickness, no more strife, no more death, no more taxes, no more want, no more need. All will be as it should be. And then lastly, I believe that as the church, we need these two letters to set our focus and gaze, not upon our circumstance, but on the one who has called us into his kingdom, has given us purpose in the now, encourages us to continue on, and directs our hope to the future weight of glory to come. And, and, and to do, do this, both, uh, in, we need this both uh, in, the, in the understanding of the now and the future longing. You see, I don't know if you're like me, but, but I can be quick to forget and lose focus. And in doing so, I lose sight on the call that I have now. We can lose sight on the call we have now as the church. But also, we can lose sight if we're not careful of the future reality. We need both of them. And at times, we have a poor focus. You see, often I think we see those as two separate things. 
It's either, oh, I have to be in the now or I have to... No, like they, they are actually tied together very deeply. And not only are they deeply connected, they inform all that we do as followers of Jesus. You see, when you are all one or all the other, we miss it. We need both. If you're all now and no future longing, you live life nearsighted. You often live life self-focused. Uh, your whole life is about protecting and providing just for today, which I believe. And Jesus says, hey, worry about today. Let tomorrow worry about itself. But also in that, in worrying about today, we realize that, man, the future hope actually affects the today. Not only that, but we live in the present, but with no passion for what's to come. And I think the problem with that is with no longing perspective for the future, what, what happens if all you're about, if you never give any recollection, if you never uh, understand the hope that is to come, man, when times get hard, you run away, you burn out. Or you become callous towards God and or life when things don't work out the way you believe they should work out. But on the other side of that, if you're all future and know now, you're always living for a future while today is passing you by. And I think what that leads to a lot of times is escapism. You escape into whatever it is instead of saying, no, I I know that I need to prepare or be ready or go towards those things. I think it leads to living, you know, this can be uh, just very practical, but also I think it can be deeply spiritual. We begin to leave, live lazy lives. How many of you, like, and this is me, like you, you say, oh, I know I need to get into shape. Like you wake up and you're like, I need to get in shape. I I need to uh, to read my Bible. I need to whatever. But you say, well, I'm going to start. How many of you like you're a Monday starter? Right? Like you think of something on like a Thursday midweek and you're like, well, on Monday I'm going to kick it off. Right? Like, you know, so on Monday I'll start working out. On Monday I'll start eating right. Because, man, this week I have three meetings at Mariachi's and like I got to do that. Right? Like I can't miss out on it. That's common grace for our lives. So Monday I'll do it. But then Monday comes, and guess what? It's like, well, Thursday I'll do it. And then it's, or maybe it's, well, okay, the New Year's coming up. I've got to make my resolutions. I'm going to, in January, the holidays are crazy. I can't escape that. So I'm going to start all these things. It doesn't have to be fitness and getting in shape. It could be even like deeply spiritual. Like I'm going to start reading my Bible, Right? I'm going to start committing to, man, just depth and community in the local church. And then January comes around and you're like, oh, man, the holidays were so crazy. I just need a month to breathe. Just, let's just get through it. And then February, like, well, I got to prepare for the Super Bowl. And then March leads to April and April leads to May. And then y'all know the months, right? And then you're back to December and you're like, okay, right? Started over again. I didn't do it last year, but this year's the year. And you realize like that, 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 that we do that all the time. You know, even in like, oh, okay, I'm going to like Monday, I'll start. Next, the next study that they do in Equip or NMC or, you know, this, like I'll start really digging in my scripture then or tomorrow. Again, we've said it before. J.C. Ryle said tomorrow is the devil's day. He doesn't care if you read your Bible as long as you say I'm going to do it tomorrow. 
And then guess what he says the next day, right? Tomorrow. Just do it tomorrow. And so today, what are you doing today to see the fruit of change in the future? And so here's my goals for this series. First, that we would be encouraged in the now, that we would be a people that learn to celebrate. Not, not uh, one, what Jesus has done, because he's always worthy of celebration, but we would be a people that, that, that learn to, to, in the midst of whatever it is, that we would celebrate the reality of God's grace and his mercy, his care for us as his people. but also that we would focus and continue on with the call that we've been called to as God's people, knowing that while we live in the now, we long for the future when all will be made new. And so now is the time. This is the day to live radical lives of faith in the face of whatever might come our way. You see, guess what? An understanding of the future, with an understanding of the future reality that we have because of God's grace, I believe it creates boldness in the now. And an understanding of the now in light of God's grace motivates us for the future. And in all of that, the gospel impacts it. And so with that before us, let's look now at this letter to the church in Thessalonica. We're going to begin by reading the first five verses of chapter 1. Two things I want you to get today. First, a gospel reminder. And then the second half is that, man, this calling to follow Jesus costs, but it's worth the cost. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Okay, so Paul begins this letter with an introduction that is really typical to his letters. Uh, and it really, it's a, it's, it would be a kind of an introduction that would be commonplace in this culture. It would be like us saying, dear, or, you know, uh, however you, to whom it may concern. But it's way more relational than that, right? Uh, but Paul Christianizes a little bit, right? Like he, he takes this common greeting. He says, no, but, but I'm going to greet you in what? In the name of the Lord. And he, he begins by doing two things. First, he, he, three, he identifies himself. But then he does two more things. He addresses the church. And then he sends them grace and peace. And so let's begin by this reality of him addressing the church. I think for us reading the letter, this address to the church seems like just a simple expression of what would be written to any church, right? Or any letter, like Dear uh, Jim or uh, Dear Tyler or whoever, like you would just write that. But remember, this is a group of people that are living as believers in the midst of some pretty serious persecution. And so I believe that his opening address is really important because what it's doing is it's coming across as a reminder to those reading and hearing it up front to remember who they are in God's kingdom. He says, church. Now again, the church, not a building, people of God. 
in Thessalonica. What Paul is doing, he's saying, hey, you the church in a particular place, by God's grace, by his providence, you are there, but also you are a particular people with a, 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 a particular purpose. You were not simply a small group of people, but a group of people in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, don't brush over that. There is so much identity being spoken to this people and to us today. Paul begins by exclaiming to this thriving but weary group of people that no matter what circumstances they find themselves in, there is hope because they are the church. That, that, that word there is the, the called out ones, the, the ecclesia. They're the called out ones of God. It's that moment, right, like y'all remember in school when they would, like they would pick teams. And for some, that's like, oh man, that was an awesome day. Right? And for others, not such a great one. <laughs> right? But it's that you would be called out. And what Paul is doing in this moment, he say, hey, you're the called out ones. You are the called out ones. Church, we are the Lord's, the called out ones. Remember who you are in the midst of the ups and downs. Never forget your calling. Be encouraged. Celebrate this. Worship in light of this because it is a beautiful and humbling reality. Like we heard it a few weeks ago, right? Jeremy McCowan said, you're in the game. Like remember, you're in the game. The, the term for the word in there in that phrase, it could actually be paraphrased as you're living in, you're rooted in, and you're drawing your life from it. That's why Jesus says, he says, if you're, if, you know, you're in me, you're, you're, you have the Father, right? Like, because guess what? I'm the vine. You are what? The branches. That's why Paul would say Christ is the head and we are what? The body. Right? You see, our call begins with remembering our life in God and Christ. And so he calls them the church in, in, in Thessalonica, and then he says, grace and peace to you. Which again, if you go through Paul's letters, that's a common phrase that he would use. And so let's just look at what these two terms mean. First, he says grace. It's from the Greek word cherean, it means rejoice or hail. This word calls us to remember the unmerited love and favor we have received from God. Not by what we did, but what He has done. And then secondly, he says peace. Again, this is not simply the absence of conflict, but a holistic peace. The scriptures would call it shalom. That brings about health and harmony with God and one another. Guess what? His grace brings peace. And in our lives, especially as the body of Christ, like we are called to be a people that proclaim grace and peace to one another and to the world around us. Because guess what? Both sides need it. I need grace and peace proclaimed to me in moments. You need it. The dying world around us desperately needs it because without it they have no hope. We are called to proclaim it. We are called to give it. We are called to share it. 
The introduction then continues with Paul telling the church just how deeply he feels for the church in Thessalonica. And he does it in three ways. First, he he talks about thanksgiving. You see, Paul is thankful to God for the people to whom he is writing because he is and has been reminded of their faithfulness and love for Jesus even in the face of trials and persecution. Which leads me to the next thing. Church, are we thankful for one another? And if we are, are we telling one another? Are we going to one another and saying, hey, I just want to say thank you. It could be for what they've done, right? But, man, again, like, are we just thankful for who they are? Like, you're a child of God, redeemed by the blood. Man, I'm thankful for you. Because guess what? You have a part to play in this. Man, grace and peace to you. And not in like a hokey way, okay? Like, this is not like, how are you doing better than I deserve, right? Or, you know, nothing like that. This is like, no, like I'm genuinely, like we need to to learn and grow in what it means to be genuinely thankful for one another and then to express it to one another. Thank you. And then Paul says, the next thing he says, man, we're in constant prayer for you. You see, Paul doesn't just talk about praying for these people. He is praying for these people. So we're called to proclaim grace and peace to one another. We're called to, to be a thankful people towards one another. But also, man, may we be a people that pray for one another. That we get on our knees and we pray for one another. And that we're willing to ask, hey, how can I pray for you? But also willing to share, hey, this is how you can pray for me. And then Paul begins to talk about this remembrance. He says, we remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope. Really what Paul is doing here is he's just simply laying out. He's saying, hey, these are three defining marks of what it means to follow Jesus. And we remember that you hold these marks. And you're continuing to live out these marks of following Jesus. John Stott on these three marks says two things about these traits that I believe are so important for our understanding of what it means to live life in the now while longing for the future. First, each of these three marks are outgoing in nature. And all the introverts went, that's not what I mean. I don't mean you have to be bubbly and everything like that. But they, it, it, it should produce like they're outgoing. They're outward focused in nature. You see, our faith is directed towards God. Our love is directed towards others, both inside and outside. And our hope is directed towards the future of Christ's return. Stott says that together these things completely or should completely reorient our lives. The new birth means little or nothing. New life in Christ means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen focus on ourselves and redirect us towards God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. Let me repeat that. The new life in Christ means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen focus on ourselves and redirect us towards God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. Guess what? The gospel is for you, but it's bigger than you. It's, not a, it's about you, but not about you. Guess what? Because of the gospel, like you don't have to fight for yourself. One, because Jesus has already paid it all. But two, he's brought us into community. And guess what? Like in terms of the military usage, I haven't been in the military. But 
we know that in the body of Christ, like somebody's got our six, right? Is that correct, Cody? Maybe? It's okay. Like we don't, we don't have to, they, the reason they can fight is because they don't have to, like, they, they know, like, one, I'm not fighting for myself, I'm fighting for these other people, and they've got, they've got my six, right? Do we live that way for one another? So the first thing is they're outgoing. Secondly, each of these marks are productive. Faith works, love labors, and hope endures. So faith works. That is, and let me say this very, very clearly. It's not that you're working to be saved. That's not what this is talking about. You know, our works don't save us, but saving faith works. Right? It bears fruit. Secondly, love labors. The, the word for labor here is kopos, and it denotes the, def, the, the fatiguing nature of what is done. Like, guess what? As Christians, like, we should be a people that are worn out. Let, let me say that. Let me say that. We should be a, a people that are both worn out and, and at rest and filled up. <laughs> Which is a crazy thing, right? Like, it is just mind-blowing that you can be totally, like, Paul says, man, he's like, I'm going to be poured out like a, you know, like a drink offering. And yet, man, Paul was like, man, but also, like, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. And, and, he, and, and Scripture says, like, we will overflow, Jesus says, with, with rivers of what? Of living water. Like, he had, like, we get this energy that we didn't know we had. Are we worn out? Are we worn out because, man, we're spending our time saying, no, we, we are laboring in love for others. Or are you just worn out because you spent seven hours on social media and, man, something about that just wears your brain out every day. You're like, why am I so tired? It's because it's just draining the life out of us. May we labor in love. We should be worn out not in trying to prove ourselves, but in our labor to love others. And then lastly, hope endures. That, that, that term is determination in the face of opposition. In light of this, we see that thanksgiving, prayer, and remembrance is all a result of their belief in the gospel. Paul says, he says, because you received our gospel. I love that he uses our gospel because it's not to be confused with any other type of news. This is the good news that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose again. That's the only good news. And so how does Paul hold this confidence about the church in Thessalonica? Well, he does it in two ways. First, they are both loved and chosen by God. Like that term there should bring great encouragement to a church facing persecution, but it also should bring great encouragement to us today. Today, is it enough for you to know that you were loved and chosen by God? As a called out one. You see I think we often hear that. And don't realize the magnitude of those words. The creator of the universe. Looks at you in love. And chooses you not because of how good you are. Or how much you bring to the table. But simply because. He loves you. One of my favorite examples of this. Is from Matt Chandler. And he said look. Like if it was up to you. Let's just talk about a football team. Your third string tied in. On a team that doesn't use tight ends. And yet, guess what? <laughs> That's what God, God says. That's how I'm going to build my church. It was a bunch of tight ends that no one else would use. Like, I'm going to choose them. I'm calling them out. 
It's not because like you're the, you can't throw it 80 yards, right? You can barely walk straight 70% of the time. But he's like, no, that's the one. Secondly, Paul knows this. The reason he knows that, that, about this, uh, this love that he has, that, uh, that this confidence he has in, in them believing the gospel is because the gospel came not only in words, but in power, with conviction by the Spirit. And then it bore fruit in the lives of those in the church because those who proclaimed it lived what was, they were preaching to them. Let me just run through these quickly. First, it, it came not only in words, but guess what? It did have to come in words. The gospel I think I shared this last week. You have to share it with words. It is a good news message. Your good works, no matter how good they are, will not save someone, but they will create opportunity for you to proclaim them about the greater work that Jesus has done that will save them. You can do all the good works in the world, but if you never say, hey, this is what Jesus has done for you, it's just good works. Secondly, it says it came in power. Now, this word here does not describe the, the power associated with miracles here, but I, I believe that likely they were displayed when, when they came to know Jesus. Actually, what this word for power means is that the words that were spoken displayed were displayed with the power to penetrate the minds and hearts, the wills, and, and, and the conscience of those that were listening. I get asked a lot from people like, hey, do you still believe that the miracles are still at work and like people can be healed? I'm like, well, yeah, it's in the Bible. Uh, like, I believe it. Um, and, and it's okay. And, I, you know, and for me, like, do I want to see those things? Yes. Do I want to see the blind see? Yes. Do I want to see the lame walk? Yes. Do I want to see the deaf hear? Yes. The mute speak? Yes. All those things. But to what end? No, rather, what I, I believe is actually the, the reason I believe that, uh, that the miracles are still alive is because salvation is the greatest miracle of all. Like, think about that. Death becomes life. So, so you, can, you can be blind and see and still not see. You can be lame and walk and still not really walk in the light. But man, when a heart is transformed by the blood of Jesus, when, when, when the power of the Spirit, man, comes in, it, it breaks down the mind and the heart and the will and the conviction, and man, it, it brings life. The next thing Paul says is conviction, which I believe is twofold. It's the power of their words that brought conviction. But the words proclaimed were spoken with deep conviction by Paul and the others who proclaimed the good news. Like they believed what they were saying. They had conviction about what Jesus had done. And then we see that all of this is, is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Words, power, and conviction come from the Spirit's work in bringing life to a dead heart. We can give no one life. We're just to faithfully proclaim with words, power, and conviction that He is the way, the truth, and the life. But then lastly, we see it's because of a lived example. You see, Paul and those with him didn't just talk about it, they lived it. You see, the problem, I believe that's a problem at times in the church today. People claim to be something, but they don't live it out. We're to preach in word and deed, and so may our deeds give weight to our words. 
So Paul starts this letter by reminding them of the work of the gospel in their lives. And so I want to close out by looking at at how he presents the result of their new life in Christ, which brings him great joy in verses 6 through 10. And you became imitators of us of the Lord, of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And what, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Alright, so Paul says that in light of their new life in Christ, he has joy because they not only heard the good news, but they have become imitators of them and Jesus. You see, these people followed their example, right? Like Paul says, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. We are to be imitators of Jesus. An imitator is someone who copies the behavior and actions of another. I mean, if we're honest, like kids are the best at this, are they not? For better or worse, like they imitate. They imitate you. They imitate me. But also like, you know, in our house right now, it's like, ooh, like, I'm going to catch the, like, look, I'm Tony the Pony Pollard, or I'm Dak Prescott, and I'm like, don't, don't be that. Or, you know, you know, but like, they imitate, like, these, these people that they want to be like, they want to, you know, look like and act like. But we are called to imitate those that we read about, but even as we look at one another, if as we see things and see the gospel make impact in, in another's life, and we see the fruit of the good news uh, begin to flourish in their lives, like, we should imitate those things. Not because it's like, hey, I want to be just like so-and-so. It's like, hey, they pointed me to the greater one, which is Jesus, and I want to imitate that. And so adults, guess what? We're all imitating someone. So today, who are you imitating? I believe a lot of times your life, your purpose, and who you're imitating is revealed in what you give weight to, what you spend time on, who you give ear to, and what you talk about most often. You see, we are to be a people that live as an imitator and not an imposter. Don't claim to be something and not be willing to live something. Our call is to be an imitator of Christ. We have a changed life. We have uh, our call to a new behavior. We're not to be the same. And guess what? That costs. Like in doing that, like if we're going to be an imitator of Jesus, it's going to cost us. Like you see it in, in this letter. Like they are being persecuted because they're saying, hey, no, we want to imitate the true king, not Caesar. And in our lives, like in certain ways, like you're going to see that. If you really want to follow Jesus and imitate him, you're going to see it. It's going to happen. Maybe not to the extent of the church that we're reading about, but it's going to happen. But look at how they received the word. It says, you receive this word in much affliction. You see, culture tells us to follow when it's easy, but the gospel message says, follow me because I'm enough through it all. Far too often we believe the lie that following Jesus would mean ease. That was never promised. Rather, he promised to never leave us or forsake us in the midst of it. 
It says, you, you, what Paul says, hey, you received this with much affliction. He said, with joy. What? It says they welcome this with joy. How do you welcome affliction? Not, not that we should look for it, but when it comes, can we have joy because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world? Again, God is not concerned with your momentary happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Joy lasts. And so they receive this with joy and look at the product. He says, now you have become examples of faith, love, and hope to the world around you. He says specifically, he says, other believers in other cities are talking about you. You see, this example of faith, hope, and love is joy expressed even in the midst of hardship. This is what Paul writes about in Philippians about Christ. He says, for the joy set before him, he what? He despised the shame and endured the cross. You see, our lives, whether they're easy or hard, are to model to others the reality of what Christ has done for us in giving his life for us. So much so, their faith, Paul says, has gone forth everywhere so they don't have to say anything. That gone forth is translated as sound forth, which means that their faith is echoing. And it's reverberating throughout all of life. And what we see has gone forth in 9 and 10 is that, man, it's the reality of the impact of the gospel in their lives. That, man, some of them turn from idols. But also they have a future longing for what's to come. So what say your life today? Like, have you experienced grace and peace? Are you experiencing grace and peace? Are you proclaiming grace and peace? You see, it's available to bring life for the unbeliever and to give grace and peace to the believer in the midst of all things. Today, are you allowing God's word by the power of the Spirit to take root and have power and conviction in how you lead and live? How today are you an imitator of Christ proclaiming grace and peace even in the face of affliction? And today, do you have joy or are you just run into happiness? As a people living in the now, our lives are to be marked by grace for today and hope for the future. We live in the now and long for the future, but in doing so, our faith works, our love labors, and our hope endures. This is what the world around us needs to see, church. This is what they need to see. And so may we be that to others. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And here in a moment, I'm going uh, to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite us up to share in communion. And so uh, after I pray, you'll be able to come up so I can get those that are going to be presenting the elements today to come forward on either side. I mean, today, I don't know where you are and where you're at, but, man, today, if you don't know that grace and peace, man, we, I want to invite you to come and know it. My, my prayer is that today it didn't just come with words, but it came with power, with conviction uh, in the Spirit, and that you would see if you haven't already that we would live life differently. But today, if you're coming in here and you're like, man, I'm just weary, that you would run to that grace and peace today, that you would live into it, that you would find hope in it, and, and that, we would, that we would love, that, 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 that we would have faith, that, that we would uh, endure in hope. Because again, we know what's coming. So this is your time to respond. One of the ways we're going to do that after I pray is if you're a follower of Jesus, and we want to invite you to come to the table.
So you can work in from the middle and receive the elements they're going to present to you and then go back to your seat. And then what we'll do is once uh, the elements are presented is we will, uh, I'll lead us in sharing together. And so I'm going to pray and then y'all move. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that um, by your grace and your mercy, we have peace, we have life, and we've been called out, but also called into the body of Christ that is, that is here and now, but also is pointing people to the reality of what's coming, to the hope of what you've done. And so may we be a people that are present also may we never lose that longing for what's to come impact our lives and hearts in such a way that we live faith love and hope so differently that it 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 brings with it and bears the fruit that, that echoes to the world around us in jesus name amen